Thank you all for joining us. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Crystal Satel, and I want to thank you for joining us um, with this for this IG live via the BCLF for our discussion with Donna, who's here. So welcome, Donna. Thank you. <laughs> We're talking about her sparkling new literary novel, Tea by the Sea. I had the honor of reading it this week, and I actually did read it by the sea while my son on top of me. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> that was pretty awesome. So a special thanks to the BCLF, an organization that promotes the works for Caribbean writers. The BCLF is committed to exploring the rich depths of the Caribbean centuries-long tradition of oral and lit written literary forms with the hopes of fostering kinship to and pride in ancestral ties to the region throughout for Caribbean stories. What's even more exciting is that we're doing this today to cap off Caribbean American Heritage Month, a space that's important for Caribbean authors like myself and Donna as our work is centered um, in and around the Caribbean. So a quick intro of myself. I am the author of the multi-generational memoir, Secrets Recapped, Three Women of Trinidad. It is, um, it's actually a book about oral stories um, and recording them. It's, it's about mother-daughter relationships, family secrets, domestic violence, a rigid ethnic and racial caste system. But most of all, it's the true story of endurance and love among women and between generations that help us find peace with the past. So, and I'm sitting here with the warm, and for those of you who are just joining us, with the warm and wonderful Donna Hemans about her book. Um, a little bit about Donna. She is the author of two novels, River Woman and Tea by the Sea, published this month by Red Hen Press. In 2015, she won the Ling Lignum, is that how you say that? The Lignum Vitae Una Marson Award for Adult Literature for the Unpublished Manuscript of Tea by the Sea. Congratulations. Thank you. Donna's short fiction and essays have appeared in the Caribbean Writer. I love the Caribbean Writer, by the way. Crab Orchard Review, Witness, the anthology stories from Blue Latitudes, Caribbean Women Writers at Home and Abroad, Ms. Magazine, and Electric Literature, among others. She was the 2007-2008 Black Mountain Institute, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, International Women's Forum Fellow, and twice served as the Lannan Visiting Creative Writing Writer-in-Residence at Georgetown University. She has received residential fellowships from Hedgebrook Malay Colony for the Arts and the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts. She received her undergraduate degree in English and Media Studies from Fordham University and an MFA from American University. She lives in Maryland and is the owner of DC Writers Room, a co-working studio for writers. So you are all about writers, for writers, and women. Thank you so much, Donna. Thank you. And here today, we are here to talk about, oh my God, this is such a gorgeous, this is a really, really gorgeous book cover. It is. I absolutely love it. I loved how it came together and I'm, I'm just happy with it. I know. Every time I looked at it, I really did look forward to picking it up and reading it this week. Every time I did, and I'm a little jealous of your book cover. Sorry. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting, because this, right? This mm -hmm. is this is from a point in Trinidad. It's one of my photos that I took looking down. Okay. And I much prefer you. <laughs> okay, so a little bit about Tea by the Sea. It is a literary novel, a story of family uniting and unraveling told seamlessly and with smart, clear prose. 
From Brooklyn to Jamaica, Tea by the Sea traces Plum Valentine's circuitous route to find her daughter and the child's father who walked out of a hospital with the day-old baby girl without explanation. 17 years later, weary of her unfruitful search, Plum sees an article in a community newspaper with a photo of the man for whom she has spent half her life searching. He has become an Episcopal priest. Her plan, confront him and walk away with the daughter he took from her. Instead, Plum finds herself locked in his church with her daughter, and by the time it's all over, Plum is the one in the back seat of a police car facing charges. Okay, now I know I'm excited to hear Donna speak. So I'm going to jump right into this book because it's a book that reaches into two worlds. We're talking about the Caribbean via Jamaica and we have America via Maryland and Brooklyn. So one thing that always fascinates me, fascinates because it's, it's just ongoing, right? right. Um, writer and a reader is the germination of an idea. Every writer has a different process in relation to how an idea, how a book presents itself to them. I once heard an author who spoke about writing an entire novel based on a walk that he took. And on the walk, he saw a boat and that boat was a spark um, for him to write his novel. So to be fair, the recount of, of his boat was much more fascinating than I'm making it. <laughs> and he was, he was just like a really good speaker also. Right. So um, I wanted to know a little bit about what that spark is or was for you, what that initial spark is. And sometimes when we trace these things back, it's interesting because it's indicative of something you maybe don't realize until you're done with the project. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that initial spark for this journey with your book? Uh, sure. It, um, for me, this one was just three parts, um, three sparks, if you want to look at it that way. So one of the first things that I, um, some time ago, I had written down a single um, sentence about, you know, wanting to write something about a group of people who were trapped in a church and refused to leave. But I had no idea why they would be in that space and what was driving this desire to be in, in the church. Um, so I, I just set that aside, didn't really um, think about how it would you know, like flow as a book or as a short story, whatever it would be. And then the second piece of it was that I started writing a short thing about a mother who was getting her children ready for school. And she went through, there's a section in the book um, where, you know, like she goes through um, getting the children ready, um, you know, picking up stuff on the floor, um, changing clothes, combing hair, wiping up a spill. And then she takes the children to school and gets ready to get on, you know, walk down into the subway station. And she gets there and instead of going and continuing on her journey to work, she turns around, leaves and heads to the church. So I now knew who was in the church, but again, I didn't know why and how she would, you know, how her story would unfold. And I, um, so a couple of weeks after that, or sometime after that, I happened to be in Jamaica, um, you know, with visiting my parents. And there's a radio program that comes on every Sunday evening and it's called Sunday Contact. And on that particular evening, a mother called in because she was searching for her child. Um, and I believe the child was about seven or eight years old. But what she said was that the father had taken the child and she hadn't seen him for a good while and she didn't know where they were. She didn't know if they were still in Jamaica. She didn't know if they were, you know, in America, Canada, England, wherever. She just had no idea. And so once I heard that, I said, this is my story. This is the woman who is in that church and she will not leave until she has found her child. So it, it came together very well. Um, you know, it's not, 
I, you know, I really didn't have any idea that that's where, it, you know, what the story would be, but you know, it, it worked out. That's amazing. As I wasn't sure about the calling in with the radio station okay. that you wonder, well, is this, does this normally happen? And so when I read that, I thought, oh my goodness, is this how she's going to find out? Well, that's one of the intrigues in the book right, yeah. is how is she going to find out? Okay, that, that's fascinating. So the opening pages of your book, it balances all of so many important things mm -hmm. we as a reader ha have to go through. The main characters, the plot, the situation, the language, the buildup, the intrigue, all these things that uh, are the introduction of your critical themes that carry us throughout the whole novel. And I think it's all things that you, man you manage so well. It also starts with Lenworth, a character that your readers have a very strong emotions about and the baby. Can you read to us from the opening and then once you're done, talk a little bit about why you decided to start there as well as a little bit about the conception of Lenward's character. Okay, sure. Um, so I'll start, it's the very opening um, section of chapter one. Lenworth was back on the main road to Anchovy proper past Long Hill's deep ravines and its corners and its peak, and long past the canopy of trees that shaded the steep road snaking up from the coast. He was on foot this time, with the baby in the crook of one arm and an oversized bag that he pulled with the other hand. Having mistaken one house on a hill for the one he sought, he was lost, and the driver who had taken him there had already left. On that stretch of road, without the towering trees, the sun's heat was like a glove on his body, too close and too heavy, and the sweat dribbling along his spine and in every crevice more of an annoyance than a cooling mechanism. He worried about the baby and the heat, whether she was too young to be so exposed to the elements. Still, he kept her covered under a thin blanket. Thin socks covered her toes. The car ride had lulled her to sleep, and she slept as if she had already grown accustomed to the sounds around her, a cow mooing in the distance, a dog's disinterested bark followed by the growl of another a couple of goat kids maying nearby, and honks from a vehicle that navigated the hilly road's deep corners. Since she was quiet, Lenward suspected she was comfortable, and he willed her to remain that way, at least until he got to the house which he imagined couldn't be too far away. The road had widened and flattened, and to his left were the abandoned railway tracks. That was his mistake. Having sat for two hours already in the car, he had simply wanted to be at the house on the hill, and had forgotten the written instructions to turn left at the junction where the tracks crossed the main road directly in front of the secondary school with the blue and white walls. Now, he watched for the point where the tracks began curving toward the main road and an unpaved road to the left of the railroad crossing. He watched for the vehicles approaching from behind and passing on his right, turning to face the road each time a vehicle approached. He was careful not to brush up against the hip-high fever grass with its long, sharp blades or the patches of cowage that would surely leave temporary welts on any exposed skin. Had it been another time, he would have pulled a handful of the stringy love bush and the thin yellow strands of the parasitic vine around his fingers. He loved the rubbery feel of it, how easily it snapped apart and in his hands. Yet it was sturdy and resilient, able to regenerate itself from just a small piece. The ground was hot, so heated the asphalt had softened and bubbled in places. The ordinariness of it all, the late summer afternoon's heat softening the asphalt, the sounds of natural life itself persevering, comforted him. He needed the comfort, for there was nothing ordinary or comforting about what led him to that road that day. 
but he wouldn't think about that, not then, not there. At last, he saw the point at which the railroad tracks crossed the main road. He saw the school children in uniform, the open field next to the school. Further up that unpaved road, another fork, the nurse's house with the scrolled iron gate, and finally the overgrown yard behind a cut stone wall. At the gate were two letters, an M and an O, the only remnants of the name someone had once given the property. Upon the hill was the abandoned house, a small and compact building that looked like it grew out of the side of a cliff. There was nothing elegant about the house. Two concrete columns that were once painted white held up a small veranda and framed a door to a cellar. To the right of the columns, a set of concrete steps rose up to the red floor of the veranda and the aqua railing that hemmed it in. The back of the house jutted out of the hillside, or so it seemed. The kitchen and dining room backed up to a small cliff, with only a sliver of space between the walls and the cliff, in which ferns and moss grew. The rooms, three if he counted only the distinct ones, or four if he counted the space in the middle with a curtain for a wall, were small. But the house would do. And despite the duck ants that formed black nests along the walls, the rotting floorboards he would have to replace, and the temperamental plumbing and electrical work, the house would be his refuge. So can you talk a little bit now about um, the conception of Lenward's character and why you decided to start here? Because given, I mean, given what you've told us about the germination of the idea, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, well, um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do with Lenworth was figure out why he would have done such a thing, why he would have taken the child. And it, so it took me some time to figure that out and to, to figure out what kind of a man would make a decision like that, what would be the driving force behind it. But in terms of starting the story here, when I initially conceived of the book and started working on it, this wasn't where it started at all. I started with that section with, with Plum in the room, getting her children ready, going to the church. And that's where the story began for me, because that was the, um, the Friday night when she um, figured out exactly what she was going to do and went off to the church to hopefully find her child. Um, and so, so the entire first and second draft of this book was written from that, from that um, written starting there with mm -hmm. Plum and her search as the central um, part of the central story um, generally. And so what I wanted to do initially was write a story that took place over like 24 to 48 hours. And yeah, um, I ended up with a story that takes place over 17 years. So <laughs> it's a, it was a dramatic change, but I knew, um, you know, like after talking with, um, you know, like I had an editor read it. And once we started talking about it and going through it, I realized that so much of the tension, you know, I needed to, more tension needed to be built in the story. And it, it wasn't quite working with the, you know, flashback kind of a story that was built upon flashback upon flashback, telling us what happened with Plum. So it, you know, this version of it came a little bit later. And, and I think it just made sense to begin with what happened. So we know exactly what happened. That's not the mystery. The mystery is really how Plum ends up finding the child and the reasons behind, um, and Lenworth's reasons for taking the baby. So answer us this, right? Do you like Lenworth? Um, I, I do. I, um, I think I, I, I like my characters. I have to like them because if I don't, I don't think readers will like them or believe them. And one of the things <laughs> I, I think is that every character, regardless of 
what um, I shouldn't say regardless of some there's some things that we do that are really coming from a place of you're hoping to do something good you want to do something good sometimes it's the direction that we go or the steps that we take don't necessarily are not necessarily the best but I think in a lot of cases we are hoping to do something good and that's what I wanted to do here with Lenworth I wanted to create a character who was initially trying to make uh trying to make a good decision um mm -hmm. it didn't necessarily turn out the right way um i know there's some people who hate him some people who will never ever understand what he did and i and i understand that but i i wanted people to at the very least understand why he did it even if you don't agree with his decisions or the steps he took i hope that people understand the why so one of the things for me personally was i kept thinking do we, could we have somebody this altruistic where he loved her so much? Mm -hmm. He was thinking only of her while we're still balancing. Well, this man took this woman's child, right? Creating a novel like this around that situation, I thought was really wonderful. Okay, thank Which you. It's actually my next question. I am thoroughly enamored by multiple perspective books. Right. Sea by the Sea does not disappoint. I've actually been working on a multiple perspective novel myself over the last few years. And um, I find the whole process very exciting because I get the opportunity to inhabit different mindsets and have wonderful conversations with people who are really similar to my characters, base these characters off of some people that I know. So only a few pages, and I think it might've been really close to where you ended after the opening, we get to meet Plum. Right. He's such a gripping female character, and we're, we're fully immersed in her perspective. Um, would you read a bit from those pages? Sure. Um, so this is where we first meet her um, when she leaves the hospital and begins her search for Lenworth. Indeed, Plum looked for Lenworth. She returned to their small cottage on property that at one time had been a large pimento and cattle estate. The pimento and the cattle were long gone the surrounding land subdivided and developed as residential plots. All that was left of the estate were the cottage and the larger house, which from the outside looked like it would crumble without much prompting from a single puff of wind, then decay. But it was only an illusion. Inside was an artist's dream. Every inch of wood on the floor and the ceiling had been replaced with hand-sanded and hand-carved mahogany. The plaster walls had been rebuilt with new concrete walls, which were painted a light cocoa, orange and green. The paint brushed on to make the walls look as distressed as the outer perimeter of the house. Necessary modern conveniences were interspersed with remnants from another time, enamel bowls, yabas and shutters that banged in the breeze. On her return, Plum passed the main house with its front walkway, flanked by two large monkey jars, flowering bougainvillea and hibiscus, and dwarfed by the flame of the forest trees behind it, both in full bloom. The flowering plants with their red and pink and yellow bloom celebrating life, taunted and teased, made tears flood Plum's eyes again. She walked past the house to the cottage in the back and found the rooms had been stripped of Lenworth's things, his CDs and books and papers and clothes. He didn't have much, but everything belonging to him was gone. Plum's clothes hanging in the wardrobe were meager, forlorn and childish, a reminder that she had only just begun her adult life. Plum ran back out, tottered reeling, and found her landlady, Mrs. Murray, 
the artist who had given new life to the decrepit and rundown historic house. Look at you, Mrs. Morris said. She held out her hands, palms upward and fingers splayed, surprise and joy in her voice. Have you seen him? Plum asked. Lenworth? No. He's gone. What do you mean gone? The levity in Mrs. Murray's voice was absent now. She looked over Plum with one sweeping glance, capturing Plum's heavy breasts and swollen belly and the distraught look on her face. She caught Plum before she fell, held her up, linked their arms and walked her back to the cottage. Inside the cottage, Plum lay on the floor and bawled, rocking and heaving on the ground like a Pentecostal, possessed by the Holy Spirit, throwing off the landlady attempting to hold and calm her. When she had no tears or sobs left to pour out and no strength to stand up, she knelt and looked around at the borrowed furniture that came with the cottage, then stood and looked around again for something of Lenworth's, a handwritten explanation, a clue to where he had gone and why. But she found nothing, no sign that he had lived there at all. Had it not been for her breasts, achingly full, it would have all felt like a miserable dream, a nightmare that Plum wasn't actually living and from which she would wake at any minute. Neither had words for what had happened. Lenworth was gone, and so was her child, the daughter she had planned to name Marissa. So I'll stop there. Oh my gosh, so this right here is a woman's nightmare, right? Um, so, oh my gosh, and I absolutely love the name Marissa. Right. You tying in the ocean and the sea and everything, the landscape is so beautiful. One of my favorite um, sentences in your book, they left the silence steep beautiful that connection to tea and the meaning to the whole book it is just it's so wonderfully done now can you talk about how you went about so you have this idea you know who your characters are you you're figuring out the situation how then do you breathe life into a character like plum you fully flush her out how then do you go about doing something like this well, with Plum, um, primarily, um, I, I had to figure out what was driving her or what would drive her. She had, you know, what was the biggest loss of her life or what I can't imagine that she would experience something bigger than that. And one of the things that I wanted to figure out then was how would that big loss at that young age affect the rest of her life? What kind of a woman would she become? Would she forget about it and carry on with her life? Is it something that would haunt every single thing that she did? Um, and so there were two things that were driving Plum, um, Plum search and, you know, just pretty much her entire life. One, it was the loss of the child, but it was also the issue of abandonment. And um, so she had been abandoned twice at this point. Her parents um, took her, sent her to Jamaica to go to school. And um, one, without telling her that this was their plan for her. And mm -hmm. um, she went, she met Lenworth got pregnant and then her parents decided that they were not coming back she would then begin her life and figure out the rest of her life in jamaica with lenworth or whatever it is that she wanted to do and then she has the child and lenworth takes off so now she has been abandoned by both by her parents and she has been abandoned by lenworth and so that i think affects how she looks at the rest of her life who can she trust and can she trust again um, so that plays out with her relationship with Alan. But also the second part of it is, will anything else that she loves or wants be also be taken away from her? And that's the second piece. When she has children later on, that fear that she will lose her children plays out over and over in the way she responds to and takes care of her children. Um, so I think for me, it was really just looking at those two 
key moments and just how they would affect everything that she does. And I think for all of us, if we look at our lives, there, there are things, some, some things might be big issues and some might be small, but there are things that affect how we go through life. There are some people who will never, you know, travel on a bus or a train because of something else that happened in their childhood. There are right. some people who will not walk at night or you won't sit with your back to a door because of something else that happened. And mm -hmm. each of those things affect us as we go through life. Some that we are fully aware of because we are self-aware. Some that we're not necessarily aware of just because it, um, you know, there are underlying factors that we don't think about, but which affect how we live and who we are. And so that's like, one of the other things I just wanted to explore. Well, you certainly explored it because I would say I really connected just as a mother, connecting with, with Plum and waking up, you know, or coming to that, that sense of, your breasts being full of milk and mm -hmm. you go through these nine months or however many months you're pregnant and you give birth to your child, that is what you're looking forward to, right? right. That, that connection and, and, and having that baby to hold in your arms and to find out that it, this is the ultimate betrayal that he's taken your child mm -hmm. and you don't know, you don't know why. You don't know why, right. That also drives the story forward and I think that is really well done. Now, you, so in addition to motherhood and betrayal and all these different levels that it's being explored throughout your book, you tackle so many issues that are just really close to my heart, not only in the realm of fiction, but issues that I've dealt with, you know, throughout my own life, things that I've explored in my memoir also, like immigration, family right. rights, um, motherhood and betrayal. Those two, those are the two things that keep coming up a lot for me as a reader. And I hold these things really close and I feel for your characters because I've lived through them. Like you said, like you're afraid to, you're afraid of heights, whatever it is that your fears are and what you bring to the book as a reader and um, the kind of narrative that you script for yourself. Now, later on in the book, pretty close to the middle, we know and we understand Plum's feelings about abandonment. Right. Age 111, we occupy a space with Plum that encapsulates an interminable, interminable life that circles waiting. And with that comes the inability to move forward. Mm -hmm. And I completely understand that for her. Um, as always, we, and time, as always, waits for right. no, just keeps moving forward. And right. we get sense from her in that most very powerful moment in the book. Mm -hmm. But that space she occupies, that moment, a mother who has never gotten the chance to feel and love her child, she's had that stolen from her. Um, and in that moment, she's kept frozen in time. Can you read to us from that section? Um, sure. And um, this is, her search has been, at this point, she has been searching for um, eight years. Um, so that's where I'll begin reading. And um, she also, leading up to this, she got a good lead about where Lenworth um, possibly could have been. And she gets there hoping that she will find her child and find Lenworth and get some answers. So eight years of active searching had come to this, an abandoned house, an outdoor stove and a doll, signs of a former life, but not necessarily his and hers. No trace of where Lenworth and her daughter had gone. No trace even of the girl's name. There was no telling how long the house had been empty. Weeks, months, years. She wouldn't cry. Instead, Plum forced her disappointment deep within, 
and buried again the words she had practiced for her little girl. There was no use in waiting, but Plum waited anyway on the veranda, her arms on the railing, her eyes strained on the hill and the roof of the house in the valley below, her body like that of a woman expecting her family or visitors to appear any minute at the bottom of the hill. Clouds shifted in and out. Smoke rose from an outdoor fire near the house below with the rusted zinc roof. Ghosts let loose in the morning bleated as they made their way back home. Only when the sun was nearly down did she leave, weaving her way back down the hill in the shadows of the large breadfruit and star apple trees, and back down the long hill past Reading, through the city of Montego Bay and onto a mid-sized hotel in Iron Shore. She took with her the one-legged doll, and an unconvincing conviction that her search would end right there at the house in Anchovy. She had come up empty too many times, and each time she walked away empty-handed, she relived that first night, waking to find her baby gone, coming home to a house that was no longer hers, feeling again like a castaway abandoned at the first sign of trouble. Thank you so much. Now, do you want to comment on this part, this pivotal part of the book? Um, I think there, I, I wanted her to get to the house. I wanted her to come close and to, and to lose it again. And I think that's one of the things that happens um, throughout. Um, and, you know, it's a test in some ways of, of her resilience. Is she going to give up? Is she going to fold? Or is she going to carry on? And I think to a certain extent here, she pulls back a little bit from her search because she has been disappointed so many times. So she is falling back into this loop of abandonment. So that's what I wanted to capture there. And I also wanted to get to a point where she felt that she had to step away and stop her search for, for a while. I see. So I read this book, like I, t like mm -hmm. I said, I did read it by the sea. And I had what what you've done with the with the characters in the, this book and the situation that you've set up with having us in Plum's mindset. Um, one day, my son was asleep on me. He's two, mm -hmm. so he's still in that in that maybe he's a baby, maybe he's not stage. So right. he's sleeping. And what you did for me is that I held my children just a little bit tighter, oh, a little bit closer, you know, and that 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 kind of fear. That's how intense the emotions were throughout this book for me. And I, I am just, I'm, I, I finished the book. I'm still thinking about Plum. I'm still thinking about Lenworth. What you've done the span of time is, is wonderful because while Plum is not seeing any of this, right? Because we know that in, in a year's worth of a, the child's first life, so much happens, right? Like right, months, right. months, sometimes week by week, things are so different. And we as the reader, you know, we have, we have Opal growing up in the background. Right. We're seeing her, we're seeing her grow. And that is helping us mark time passing, mm -hmm. right? And at the same time, when we switch to Plum's perspective, we are realizing, oh my goodness, this is what this woman is missing out on every right. second. As well as Opal feeling that there is something huge missing. Mm -hmm life right that was so well done so at the beginning of part four which i think mm -hmm. is one that's, that's actually the title team of the sea um we entered the mundane with plum so this it was this kind of the the situation that helped spark the um the novel the, the story no um that section comes a little bit later on that's a little Please, bit later. Um, right we're with plum and we're with her twin daughters and in their life together 
And there's something so beautiful in just watching her go through these moments of motherhood while right. we'll, we're still balancing what was stolen from her with Opal, who I personally think should still be called Marissa, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> we're watching her care for her daughters, which makes me reflect on moments like these when I take care of my own children in the face of accidents. And it's often in these small moments where we discover something that changes our perspective. And in this case, it thoroughly changes Plum's life, turns her world completely upside down, the moment that we've all been waiting for. Really? Right. Can you read from those pages? Sure. Brooklyn, East 33rd Street. The air was a little bit cooler and smelled of rain. Plum polished windows, both the inner and outer sides of the glass with a crumpled newspaper and a mixture of vinegar, lime, and water. She whistled, thinking at the same time of the uselessness of her chore polishing the exterior windows when rain had set up to fall. But she didn't stop, simply moved her arms like a wound-up doll, powerless to stop itself. Behind Plum were her girls, Nia and Vivian, seven-year-old twins, one doing cartwheels, the other watching, both girls lingering really and waiting for Plum to finish and turn to them. They were clingy girls, or perhaps it was the other way. Plum was an overprotective mother, preferring to have her girls with her, underfoot, within reach. Except for work, she didn't leave them. All these years, she hadn't been able to shake the fear that her girls wouldn't be there when she returned. But they were there, Nia, the acrobatic one, contorting her body through the air, and Vivian, a quiet observer with a book on her lap, stealing glances at Nia. Nia took risks. Vivian weighed consequences. Together, the girls balanced each other, and often, when Plum imagined them older, as teenagers, she saw Nia treating life like a tightrope and Vivian holding the net beneath her sister. Even if Alan had been home at that very moment, the girls would still have been nearby waiting for her to finish and turn to them. Nia stumbled and crashed and Plum turned to see her sprawled on the hardwood between the coffee table and the couch. Water from a cup pooling, magazines from the rack scattered on the ground like shattered glass and the storage bench flipped over on its side. You all right? Where did you hit? Did you hit your head? Nia, giggling instead of talking, looked at her sister and the pool of water spreading fast toward the rug. Vivian laughed too, their laughter loud, uncontrollable. Plum moved her daughter's shoulders and arms, watching for a wince, waiting for a shiver of pain, but again got only uncontrollable giggles. Enough of the cartwheels. She was trying to flip onto the bench and back down, Vivian said. Enough. Plum hadn't heard their discussion at all, hadn't heard the usual, watch me. Plum shook her head, moved towards a spreading pool, newspaper in hand, and layered it on top of the water sheet by sheet, and drew her breath. It was a hiccup, really. She looked again, closer this time, back bent, water dripping from one half of the newsprint. She ripped the sheet in half and dropped, dropped the wet half to the floor, then moved toward the window, sheet in hand for a closer look in the natural light unmistakable, Lenward. She hadn't forgotten the face, the half smile, the thick brows, the thin nose. Below the photo, a caption with his name and his title, priest. Unmistakably him. Outside, the rain that had set up came with force, pummeling the plants that had withstood summer and flooding the gutters and the nearly empty roads. The wind whipped the rain around, sprinkling raindrops against the windows like pebbles on glass. East 33rd Street was otherwise quiet, with everyone, it seemed, hunkered down, waiting out the mid-afternoon downpour in place. Plum waited out the rain just within view of her laughing, cavorting girls. She held the newspaper up, 
using the pages as a shield from the girl's gaze. At least for the moment, Nia had given up the cartwheels and handstands, and she sat with Vivian playing jacks. Behind the newspaper, plums calcified grief. All 17 years of it broke apart, and tears almost as fierce as the rain dribbled down her cheeks, settling uncomfortably in the corners of her mouth. Now, I think one of the things that people find so unforgivable, because I've, I've spoken to a few uh, friends about your book, um, oh. Those conversations are starting already <laughs> is that there's no curiosity from him right he never seeks her out can mm -hmm. you talk a bit about the decision to do that and the way their lives turned out because of that yeah i think um for lenworth it's just purely guilt he knew what he did was wrong and um he he couldn't and wouldn't face what he did um, and I think, so one is guilt, but it's also he has created this, this life that's built upon lie after lie after lie. And anything that he did would have caused that entire life to come to, to crumble and fall. And he would be right back where, you know, with, with nothing pretty much. So I think what is also driving or what also drives Lenworth is, is the idea of what had been taken away from him as a child. And I, I don't want to give away that part of the story. You know, I, um, hmm. you know, I get into why Lenworth did what he did. But I think once we understand what he did, once we understand how he, what he lost or what he thought he lost as a child, um, how that affected him, how that affected the trajectory of his life, then I think we begin to understand a little bit more about why he wouldn't be willing to reach out to Plum how the life that he managed to then create, if any piece of it tumbled, his entire life would fall apart. And that is not something that he wanted to face again. So he made a bad choice and he just simply had to stick with it, one, both out of guilt and also because if he did anything different, he would lose everything. Yeah, and it's not, it's not easy to come back from that kind of guilt. So it was kind of protecting himself too. Yeah. I I do have I do have empathy for all of your characters, every single one of them is what to make them so well rounded. And I think anybody can find someone to connect to in this book. Now, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about place because, you know, the Caribbean is such a vivid place, beautiful. And it comes across in almost all of the Caribbean books that I, I, I read. And I've spent some time in Jamaica and different parts of Jamaica too. And the water and the sunsets alone are enough to create an ache in someone's heart. I mean, okay. about them all the time. The water, water and sky is just also something that I write about a lot. So it's something that I zero in on in someone's writing. Um, and I know the landscapes of a lot of the islands very well, having grown up in Trinidad and weaving place into my own book. But more than anything I love is when place comes so much alive and I, I, I find myself a lot of the times actually making place one of the main characters in whatever it is that I'm writing. So my connection to place is not just in the Caribbean, but it is very strong. And I feel this connection to Plum um, because it's actually part of her conflict. Um, the heartbeat sometimes is this love of two places, but it means to want and to love both places at the same time. Could you read us that short section on um, page 86? Um, okay. Plum wasted no time heading out of Kingston, following turn after turn until she was on the highway to Spanish Town, driving past acres of cane plants. 
the thin green leaves waving in the breeze, the rich red dirt vibrantly colorful in the tropical sun. How she missed the island, the countryside especially, the stillness of an afternoon, the sea breeze lapping at her face through an open car window, winding down a hillside road, looking out and still being surprised at what she knew was there. The deep blue sea in the distance with its limitless possibilities, a perfect view. How she missed her aunt's house, the expansive almond tree whose branches had grown out instead of up, spreading so wide the tree resembled an oversized mushroom, sheltering the lawn between the gate and the veranda. At 15 years old, it was where she sat afternoon into evening, pining for Brooklyn, the city from which she had been expelled and to which she had reluctantly returned. But now, nothing of her life in Brooklyn measured up to her memories of wasted afternoons on, under the almond tree. That afternoon, the windows down, warm air swirling around the car, familiar scents wafting in and out, Plum felt hopeful, as vibrant and alive as the bougainville and hibiscus blooms in the sun as colorful as the croton plants in just about every yard. She wanted fruit but didn't stop for the roadside vendors, just drove on as if maneuvering around the ruts and the road and the deep corners was part of her everyday life. And so that section that I just read was um, Plum was on her way to find Lenward's mother. After some years of searching, she finally figured out who his mother was and where she was living. And so she was hopeful about finding out more information about Lenworth and hopefully finding her child. Right. So can you talk a little bit about what place means to you um, as a person, what it means to Plum and what it means to Lenworth and if those things line up or if they're very different? I think they're very different. I think for Plum, um, you know, she is, you know, of course, concerned about Brooklyn and she's concerned about Jamaica. And um, the way I think of it, having lived, for me, having lived in Jamaica and having lived in Brooklyn, I think I can see it the way um, Plum sees it. Um, you see, you know, you see Jamaica both as a, as a person who lives there and you see it as a visitor. And I think the same. And then when she went to um, Jamaica, lived in Jamaica for, for a few years and came back to Brooklyn, she was also able to have a different perspective on Brooklyn. She was able to see Brooklyn from a completely different perspective. So right. I think sometimes it's the, the distance away from a place creates a completely different view. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think also for Plum, um, Jamaica is, is uh, it, it gives and it also takes away because that's where she, she lost her child. She lost Lenworth. But also Brooklyn is, is, a, is a, it feels hard. I mean, I guess the way I wrote it and described it, it feels like a very different place. So Jamaica is still, despite what she has lost in Jamaica, it still is a lush and, and beautiful place. It gives, whereas it gives and nourishes, whereas Brooklyn is a, is a bit different. It takes more away from her than it gives her. I mean, it shifts a little bit later when she figures out where Lenworth is, but it still is a place that is that um, in her, I mean, reflects just a little bit differently. I see. Okay. And that's wonderful. And actually that leads, I really wanted to ask you since it is, you know, Caribbean Heritage Month, what mm -hmm. to you um, being a Caribbean American? It's, um, you know, it's one of those things that I think, 
um, has just really changed a lot for a lot of us. And, you know, the way I, I look at it from my perspective growing up, there was so much that we were taught to hate about our culture and about ourselves. Right. And a lot of that, that just simply lingered from colonial times. So there were so many things that we could have and should have been celebrating that we just simply didn't. And I think what Caribbean American Heritage Month has done for very many of us here is that um, we have begun to and we have begun and we are celebrating a lot more of the things that we were taught not to not to love not to like um and so i i i love to see it and i appreciate you know like all the people who have put you know like time and effort into creating one creating african i mean caribbean american heritage month and all the celebrations of of who we are or foods or culture in general or music or or literature or stories I love what the Brooklyn Caribbean Literary Festival is doing about, you know, like our stories or literature or um, fiction or memoirs or poetry, you know, like just so much of it. Is, it's just all rich and we have so much, but we don't always celebrate it. We don't always know that it exists. And so, you know, like I'm, I'm just happy to have a month where we can dedicate so much time and energy to our Caribbean American heritage but also hope that we can, you know, ex extend it throughout the full year so that we're not just thinking about certain things or some parts of our culture, some parts of us during this month, but, you know, like throughout the whole year. Well, th that's, that's such a great answer to that question. So thank you so much for that. Mm -hmm. uh, what, you made me really think about language, right? Because this is one of the things that um, I was taught to, mm -hmm. to hate about myself. You know, when you're moving your accent, your, you know, your dialect, whatever it is, yeah. you move from the Caribbean, move to America. I worked really hard to erase my mm -hmm. accent. And I mean, the way I talk, I'm talking to you right now is like my professional way of talking out mm -hmm. in the world. It's not the way that I speak at home. Right. And um, that is, that was kind of like self erasure. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I love doing is replicating language in whatever I'm working on. And you, what you've done with Tea by the Sea is really beautiful. And I wanted you to talk about, you know, language in all of your works. It doesn't only have to be in Tea by the Sea, you know, with accents, dialects, foreign languages. So for example, when I was writing, when I was writing the memoir, mm -hmm. um, thankful that there were other writers who I could, who I could look to. And it's not just Caribbean writers that I looked to for models. I, um, cause I needed to, I just needed to discover myself and to discover what I wanted to do as a, as a new writer. And so I turned to authors like Juno Diaz and Zora Neale Hurston, um, Dandicat, mm -hmm. Zadie Smith, Andrea Levy, actually, who unfortunately passed away last year. Um, and Shani Mutu for inspiration. I needed to see how, what they did with language to figure out what I wanted to do. So right. about what, you do with language in your work and um, the importance of that to you? Um, well, you know, language is, is one of those things that, I mean, it certainly is important to me and it, it, it's hard for me and I, I hope it doesn't show that, you know, in my work hard. that it is something. What do you mean? That. Hard, hard how? Um, you know, like, like I was saying, you know, we grew up um, being taught that, you know, like a lot of our culture wasn't wasn't the right culture and that those are things we should leave behind. So, um, you know, Jamaican Patwa, for example, is one of those things that I was taught as a child was just simply broken English. 
Right. And it was, you know, not something that you should have been speaking. You know, so the high school I went to, you know, there were days when there would be, um, you know, girls would be fined, you know, maybe five cents or 10 cents or something if they spoke, um, you know, in Jamaican Patua. And, you know, it was, it's much later on that I learned that it wasn't just simply broken English, that a number of those words were, were African words from, you know, various, you know, West African languages. And those were not just mispronunciations, those were, you know, like exact words that you can link back to um, various, um, you know, like cultures and, and, um, and languages. And um, so it, it made such a big difference for me to see and to understand that and to also look at the way in which one, I, you know, my parents certainly did not want to hear Patwa at all. So half the times when I try to say anything in Patwa, I feel like I am, you, you know, that how, you know, when Americans try to talk, like, um, I mean, like, oh. from the Caribbean, it just oh, yes. sometimes, <laughs> uh, sometimes that's what I think that I sound just as fake. And so it, it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to, to make sure that I am, um, accurately portraying it i hear it and that's the way i hear people speak mm -hmm. but i don't necessarily like i couldn't have a conversation with you in just pure jamaican patua i i, I couldn't i couldn't last because it's not something that i grew up doing mm -hmm. and so that's just a part of the erasure for me um that you know we have been taught and that i think we have to unlearn and begin to accept as not just broken English, but a real part of our heritage, a real part of the way in which our ancestors had to figure out how to survive when they got to, um, you know, the Caribbean. They had to create a language that worked for people who were from various ethnic groups. And in order to do it, they had to create a language that, you know, had, very, had, had commonalities across various um, cultures. So for me, coming from that background and thinking, you know, like Patwa was just not something that we should be speaking. One of the first books that I, I read, um, I shouldn't say one of the first, but one book I read when I was in college was Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Oh my God. And once I read that book and I started listening to the way people were talking, it, they sounded just like Jamaicans to me. And so I felt like I was at home. I felt like those were my people. It was a Florida community, but it just felt to me like I was hearing my people. And it, it made me want to write. It made me want to do the same thing for Jamaica and for Jamaican culture and to build, you know, build a community like that to, to reflect what we had grown up with in literature. So I think I'm driven by, by what she did, driven by what I see. And what I know we can and should be doing that what we have is rich and it's 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 strong and we should celebrate it. We should make sure that we um, write about it and create things that other others, you know, future generations can read and see and believe that they are their culture is as worthy as any other culture. Right. So we should keep celebrating it. Absolutely. I agree with you. That book also changed my life. I remember right. their eyes are watching God and I thought, yeah, this is definitely one of those books that I'm going to carry in my heart for the rest of my mm -hmm. life. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. <laughs> so since it is um, Caribbean Heritage Month, Korean American Heritage Month, do you want to show us a book that one of your favorite Caribbean books um, or something that you're currently reading? Either one. 
Yeah, well, I I have a couple of books that I want to read and should be reading, but I, you know, this whole coronavirus and with everything happening in the world, I just have not been able to read much of anything. I well, have sat down with books. Huh? Tell us what's on your list. I'm very curious. <laughs> um, on my list, I have, um, I'm working through um, Book of the Little Acts, um, Lauren okay. Francis Sharma's, I have that. Um, Ghosts are, these ghosts are our family. I want to read. I um, that's is, also on my list. Who is that? These, um, I can't remember her her name. Macy, I believe. Maybe. I can't remember. I just did a talk with her. She's wonderful. She's really oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm. I'm looking. Yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, and I'm hoping that you know I can get there very soon because I really need to start reading again. But one of my um, one of the books that I love and I go back to from time to time is um, is um, Edwidge Danticut's um, The Farming of Bones. And okay. what I love about that book is that you know there's a beautiful story. And it also is a story that mines history and talks about a very difficult period for Haitians. Um, but there's also still a very beautiful story at the heart of it. And I, lo I love books like that. I love stories like that, that, that blend both the historical aspect with, you know, like just a beautiful um, story. Oh, so for those of you who are still listening, it was Maisie Card. That was her name. Maisie Someone... Card, right. That's the name. Um, I do have a couple other questions and some people did send their questions in. Okay. Um, but can you tell us about how long it took you to write this book? Um, I want to say it was about three years, three to four years. So I wrote, um, I think two drafts of it and then probably spent another year rewriting and reworking it. So give or take three to four years somewhere in there. Drafts did you go through for this book? Um, I believe about three. It's not much more than that. I, I edit as I write. And so usually by the time I'm done with one draft, it feels like just about everything is in the story. Mm -hmm. At least that's the way it feels when I'm done with it. You know, what happens when I get to the second and the third and the fourth draft, you know, it's a whole different thing. But this one I think was about three. I want to get to a couple of the questions that um, people sent in for us. Someone asked, what is the significance of tea in your story and we're gonna have donna talk about that and i do have a very fun question for donna it's a question that i've always wanted someone to ask me and since she didn't give me any questions to ask her <laughs> wanted surprises the entire way through i'm gonna ask you this question after you talk about the significance of tea in your story and please tell us what kind of tea are you drinking today okay because you're supposed to join us with your favorite tea i was really looking forward to that and I did make tea. I made, um, I made, uh, what did I make? I made turmeric tea, but it's too hot right now. Oh, I just didn't bother. <laughs> it's never too hot to drink tea. It is never too hot. <laughs> tea was, um, is the one thing that had kept, um, or one of the things that uh, Plum and Lenworth had in common initially. So when she was a student at school, she, um, she and he would sit down and drink tea together. And um, so it's, it's the one thing that he knew that she liked and she liked to talk about using, um, you know, whether it was orange peel or, or various bits and pieces of things to, 
to make tea. And so that's one thing they shared together. But um, they also went to the beach. Um, whenever she was home from school, she would, you know, I go to the beach and take, um, you know, like some kind of pastry or something and they would have tea. And so that was their, their ritual. So, but later on, it's one of those things that Lenworth uses to create some kind of a bond for, um, at least with, with Opal. And it's something that he thought that Plum would have done with her daughter had mm -hmm. she been in Opal's life. And so that, that's really what it is. It's, the, it's largely Lenworth's guilt, making him do something to give um, Opal some kind of a connection to the mother that he took away from her. And it's a it was a beautiful ritual. I mean, reading that and understanding that that was the connection and that did keep that one thing. It was so beautiful. And I have to tell you, I love orange peel tea. I grew up with it, right? And my parents would make it all the time. And so, but as a child, as a kid, you're mm -hmm. just to, to just having it, you know? Right. I moved to the States. I moved here when I was 12, 13. And so I moved here and I, I now I want, I wanted to, with my firstborn, I, I thought, I'm gonna make you orange peel tea, like how okay. your grandparents used to make it for me. Mm -hmm. And so I thought you just had to just dry. Well, in, in this climate, first of all, I'm making this in the middle of winter and you cannot do it. You can't just leave orange peels lying around. <laughs> you have to dry them in the oven, right? Oh, okay. I'll tell you that I've tried to do that. I tried and I failed so many times before <laughs> I turned to Google to help me make orange peel tea. <laughs> But so I find tea such a beautiful thing to, right. um, you know, to lace to this book, to have mm -hmm. that, you know, the rhythm of the language and the title of your work was beautiful. Um, so another question that we had from someone was, what were the significance of the names with your characters in your book? Um, Plum, I, um, you know, it was one of those things that came to me. I was trying to write something else some time ago and, and that was the name I used and I really loved it. Um, and I hadn't been able to finish that story and I wanted to use that name and so she became Plum. Lenworth became Lenworth because I started out using, Louis, um, I think it was Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. And um, I was also setting the story at in Anchovy, which is where my father grew up and that's my grandparents' house. The house that Lenworth goes to is actually my grandparents' house that I've described. Wow. And, um, so I have an uncle named Louis, and you know, I said, well, okay, I'm using anchovy. I don't want to use a name that sounds like his name that would give the impression that this was his story. So okay. Louis became Lenworth. And Opal, I think because I, I really wanted Marissa, and I, which is how I just dropped that in there, because I, I like the name Marissa, I like what it means. Um, but I knew that, um, if Lenworth named her, that's not the name he would have given her. Um, so it, you know, it worked with um, what I use as a color of her eyes. So it just worked. So this is, this is a question that I, I've been really excited to ask you. And it was, if you had to pick mm -hmm. a song or two for each of your main characters. So we're talking about, let's say Plum, Lenworth, and Opal, right? The, those three. Um, what would a couple of their favorite songs be along with their, along with the artist's name? Whatever you can come up with this one, <laughs> one of them, you could pick one, right? And so right. what we're, what our listeners are doing now is we're curating a playlist for them. Oh, okay. Um, I, um, 
I don't know that I can come up with specific songs, but um, Itana is one of the artists whose work I love. And um, it's, she's a Jamaican reggae singer. And there's an album that she um, put out a few years back. And I cannot remember the name of the album right now, but I felt that the title of it and just some of the songs just felt like the um, album that would have worked with this book in general. Um, I <laughs> wish I could remember it and I would have to start searching, but if somebody tells me the names of her um, <laughs> albums, then I can figure out which one it is. <laughs> oh my gosh, thank you. So you don't want to tell us maybe, maybe what songs did you listen to? Or did you find yourself gravitating to any kind of playlist as you were working yeah. on the book? I, I actually don't listen to listen to anything when I write. I, I like complete silence. I would prefer to, I actually, this book I worked on um, in the mornings, usually somewhere around four or five o'clock in the mornings. For some reason, I, I couldn't, I was waking up at four o'clock for some reason that I could not understand every morning I kept waking up at four. And so rather than just lying there, you know, not being able to sleep and just lying there, I got up and I, started to work on it and so that that's what I did this is how I, I actually finished this book I just simply got up and I um you know like I came down into the basement I didn't um didn't turn the lights on didn't do anything I just opened up the computer and started working and it it worked <laughs> I keep talking to writers who keep telling me this about waking up really early right I I would love to do it but I just can't <laughs> So power to all of you who wake up super early. I've tried it. Maybe I'll try it again. Um, I'll let you know. This is a question that I, it's, uh, I have mixed feelings about this question, right? You just gave birth to this book. This book is now coming out into the world. We are celebrating that. Thank you so much for joining us here. And at the same time, you know, the question is, I know the question. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and luckily, I actually have something that I am working on. Um, I had, before I finished, um, before I started working on Tea by the Sea, I had been writing two other books. Um, mm -hmm. One is a story that's set in um, Cuba and Jamaica. And I had done quite an, a, a good amount of research on that book. And I tried and tried and tried to make it work. And I think I failed in every attempt to make it, to tell the story that I wanted to tell. Okay. And um, so I, I set it aside and I started another one. I had some other issues with telling that story and I set that one aside as well. And then for some reason I started writing Tea by the Sea. So I have, once I was done with Tea by the Sea, I, fi I think I finally figured out how to tell the story that I wanted to tell. Um, and I went back to it. And getting to fig figuring out how to tell that story really just was all about the 2016 election. And it just opened up something different in me. And I started looking at the characters in a slightly different way. And once I saw one character as a, as a different person, I made her, I think I figured out how to make her a fully, to tell her own story as opposed to having her, a younger person tell her story for her. And it has just blossomed into a, a book. That is wonderful. Now we know that we have more to expect from you and we can continue to celebrate your celebrate you and other writers like you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you everyone for joining us here today. And if you would like to follow Donna, can you tell them your handle? It's at Donna underscore Hemans. And if you would like to follow me, it's at Crystal Satal. Bye everybody. Thank, Thank you. you.
much, Donna. Thank you.